Our scripture reading today is from Acts 16, 11 through 15. This is found on page 925 of your pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love you to take that one home as a gift from us. So, setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and now on the Sabbath day we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kay. And you may be seated. Well, welcome again to Christ Community. We're so glad that you're here this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad you're here with us, especially if you are newer to Christ Community or just newer to church in general. Um, know that exploring church or finding a new church is a hard, can be a hard thing to do. So thanks for being with us, um, for sharing your time with us this morning. We're really grateful uh, for that. And uh, as we continue worshiping together and now looking into this text that Kay read for us, I'd love to pause and just pray and ask that God would do for us what he did for Lydia, that he would open our hearts uh, to his word. So let's do that now. Jesus, we thank you that you have by the power of your Holy Spirit, inspired this word. And that as a result, it is not just ink on paper, but that it is, it is, it is life, that it, these are living words. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present, working, active, to bring this word to life in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, writer Oz Guinness, who is, uh, yes, he's both related to the Book of World Records people, as well as the, the Guinness beer people, but he uh, wrote this once. He made this observation I've always appreciated. He says, as modern people, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. Too much to live with and too little to live for. I wonder if that resonates with your experience ever in life. This, the sense that there's, there's a lot to deal with, put up with, and, and often not enough in the midst of that to live for. And maybe you are at the beginning of your career, maybe you're early on in that, that process, and you're starting to kind of get your, your, kind of your feet under you in that, and it, it's not so crazy, but you're beginning to wonder in the midst of that, okay, now is there a bigger purpose in my life and work than just advancing in this career? Or maybe on the other end of that spectrum, you've just recently entered into a season of retirement. And now, now you find yourself in that place of, okay, this life of work that has been such a central part of, of giving meaning and purpose and direction and order to my days, now that is, that's gone and it looks really different. What is, what is this next chapter going to be like? Or maybe you spend most of your days 
caring for young children. And, and you often feel lonely, unseen, unappreciated, and maybe just bored at times. Or maybe you're, maybe you're a student and you're in this, this place of you're working hard on extracurricular activities and you're getting ready for, for the next school year and you're, you're, you're trying to build out that, that college resume with all the, the things that you need for that and to get into the school, but there's this maybe nagging sense, is it really all going to be worth the, the effort that I'm putting in? Regardless of your particular season or situation in life, I suspect that we all have a deep longing a deep longing to be a part of something, something that's bigger than us, something that will outlast us. Kind of, kind of in short, simply in the midst of all that we have to live with, right? From, from uh, politics and paying bills to pandemics and piles of laundry and all the stuff that, that makes up life, that we long for something to live for. Something to live for. And I think it's why we love stories like the Harry Potter stories or the Hunger Game books, because in those stories, the characters, there's such a clear sense of, of purpose, right? Of, of adventure and drama and, and what's at stake and, and a calling, and something bigger. And, and Christians believe that our love for those stories, our longing for some, to live for something, to have something to live for, that, that that's not an accident, and also that it's not it's not a problem. Like, it's, it's a feature of being a human, not a bug of being a human. This desire to be a part of something. The Christians believe that God is moving, that he exists, that he's active, that he wants you to be a part of the grand adventure, the grand narrative, the drama that he is authoring. And today in our Forgotten Family series, which is this a series we've been doing throughout the summer, just looking at kind of overlooked or forgotten characters in the biblical story. Today in the series, we are going to encounter a, a businesswoman, a businesswoman who is at the top of her career, who unexpectedly finds herself on the leading edge of a movement that changed the direction of a continent for the next two millennium. And we don't know all the details of her life, but we do know, as we look at her story, that she had a lot to, to, to live with, <laughs> a lot to put up with, no doubt, and that she is looking for something to live for. So let's take a look at her story. And you know, sometimes you never know what's going to happen when you leave your house in the morning. And I'm sure that Lydia didn't know that morning when she left her estate and walked down to the river to meet her friends that what was going to happen that day. You know, this had been her, her ritual, her routine, it seems like, for some time now. And she'd met with her friends each Saturday. And they would gather down by the river, Saturday, the Sabbath. And they would kind of engage in spiritual practice today and teaching and learning together. And you know, this was not the tradition, the spiritual, religious tradition that Lydia had been raised with, but she found herself drawn to it. And in her successful and highly lucrative career as a textile magnate, Lydia had undoubtedly experienced a lot of different peoples and cultures, seen a lot of different religious expressions, different gods in the ancient Greco-Roman world. She traveled from her home, where she was from in Thyatira, which is in Asia, it's modern-day Turkey, to Philippi, which is a city in modern-day Greece, on the continent of Europe. This is actually a picture here I've got of this is what kind of uh, the site of Philippi looks like. This is in Greece today, but those are the, the ruins of the ancient city of Philippi. This is where, so where Lydia had her estate, where she had traveled to and made her home from Thyatira. 
and her career had skyrocketed when she was able to start dealing in purple cloth and purple fabric. This was kind of like the cashmere of the ancient world. This was the premier luxury fabric. It was a sign of wealth, a sign of luxury. And it was made from this purple dye that was derived from three different specific kind of species of mollusks that live in the Mediterranean Sea. And it was incredibly expensive because it was hard to make. Right, so you have these, these mollusks that you have to catch them first, which that process was, was difficult. And then they had to be crushed because when they were crushed, they would release this kind of, it was colorless liquid, but when it was exposed to air, when you took it out of the seawater, it made this color fast purple dye, but then it had to be mixed with salt and processed. And it took 12,000 of these mollusks to make like seven tenths of an ounce of this dye. So it's an incredibly labor intensive process to make this fabric. But, but the result was stunningly beautiful. The Smithsonian Magazine, just earlier this year, back in February, uh, wrote an article about an archaeologist who discovered some purple-dyed wool that dated all the way back to 1000 BC. So this is the time of King David. Um, I mean, but it's beautiful. I mean, that's pretty good dye, like hanging up over, you know, 3,000 years, right? And so it was this high-end luxury cloth that Lydia had devoted her career to, and it's likely that this cloth, this career, is what took her from her home in Asia and Thyatira and brought her to the continent of Europe, to Philippi. And that morning, as she rounded the bend outside the city wall, went down to the river to meet with her friends, this group of women that she had met with for a long time, she notices some people she doesn't recognize. And when she gets there, they introduce themselves. Their names are Silas and Luke and Paul. And Paul spoke. He begins to, to teach that day. And she finds out that they had just arrived from the city of Neapolis, but before that they had come all the way from the region of Judea. Judea, the homeland of the Jewish people, and the Jewish faith that Lydia had been attracted to. You see, she was not ethnically Jewish, but we understand from this text that she is practicing, she's a God-fearer, a God-worshipper, she's worshiping the God of the Old Testament as a non-Jewish woman. And Rabbi Paul, you know, Paul, before he becomes the Apostle Paul, was a rabbi trained, he begins to teach on the Sabbath morning. And something strange happened to Lydia that Paul spoke probably about a lot of things that she was familiar with about the Jewish faith, but then he made a startling turn. He claimed that the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews had hoped for, prayed for, the, the long-anticipated king in David's line had actually come in the person of Jesus. And that he had come not just for ethnically Jewish people or ethnically Jewish men, but he had come to be the king and rescuer of all people, and that he had actually commissioned his followers to go and make disciples of all people, in all nations, in all languages, men and women alike, including Thyatiran expats living in Philippi, just like her. And you can only imagine Lydia in this work, and advancing the career to be this place. She's, she's shrewd. You know, she knows a good deal when she sees it. She also knows how to spot a fraud. And despite the fact that all that Paul was seen saying probably seemed both too wonderful and too fantastic to be true, in that moment something moved her that left her forever changed. Luke describes it this way. This is the Lord opened her heart. Now, we tend to think of heart as like our emotions, but 
in kind of Greco-Roman thought here, heart is the totality of like your will, your mind, your intellect, your emotions as well, but this, this kind of total decision-making, allegiance-making center. God opens her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And Lydia believed. She believed the good news about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and her, uh, as well as her whole household, like her whole staff, her, this entire household that she oversees, is baptized. And they become disciples of Jesus, Christians, followers of Jesus' teaching and his way of life. And, and, and much more uh, that I'm sure that Lydia thought was going to happen to her that morning when she left her home and went down to the river that day. And these are the events that are recorded for us in Acts chapter 16, where we see Lydia, this industrious, this prosperous woman, become the first person recorded on the continent of Europe to hear and receive the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. God is on the move. I mean, that's the, that's the story in, in the book of Acts, of which Lydia's story is a part of, that God is on the move. And God moves her, and she becomes a part of his movement. So if you jot down one thing from the message this morning, I hope it's this, that God is moving you to live for something more. God is moving you to live for something more. Because we do, as, especially as modern people, have so much to live with, as Oz pointed out. But in Jesus and in the gospel, we truly have even more to live for. But to experience that more, we have to be moved. We have to be moved. And as we reflect on Lydia's story here in Acts chapter 16, we are going to see three moves that Jesus makes in her life and our lives when he draws us into his movement. So three moves that Jesus makes. The first move is this, that Jesus moves us from religion to relationship. From religion to relationship. This is always the first move. Because you know, here's, here's the uh, basic truth of what it means to be human, is that we all have some kind of working answer, even if it's not sophisticated, even if it's not well thought out. We have some kind of working answer to the question, how did, how did I get here? How did, how do, where did all this come from? Why, did, why do we exist? How did we come to exist? How do we come to be? Right? And there's, there's a Hindu answer to that question. There's a, a Buddhist answer to that question. There's a materialist answer to that question. But the Christian answer to that question is deeply rooted in relationship. Because the Christian answer to that question is that there is a personal God who is three in one, a tri-personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that from the very beginning, from all eternity, is not just raw power, searching for an object to love, creating out of need, creating out of lack, but a God who is deeply satisfied and full of joy within the community that is himself. And that out of that dance of joy and life, he creates to share, not because he needs anything, not because he needs companionship or servants or any of that, but because he wants to share the goodness of his life. And he creates. Which means that in the Christian understanding of reality, relationship is at the core, it's at the center. Love, not power, is at the core of a Christian understanding of existence. And so God is always after relationship with us. This is why what happens in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, these first parents of ours, when they turn against God, Sometimes it's so, we misunderstand that in the sense of it's like, well, did they just 
you know, break a rule and God gets really upset. No, they didn't just break some kind of cosmic municipal penal code that was out there. They actually reject relationship with God. And this is what's so devastating. And, and, and we, we know this, we've had this experience as people, that the most difficult thing about someone lying to you or betraying you is, is not that, that you know, they, they violated a rule on a piece of paper somewhere that you shouldn't lie or you shouldn't betray, but that, that actually it destroys that relationship. And the pain and the feeling of that, the loss of that. So this is the place that we all find ourselves with God. In, in religion, whether that is sort of a, a kind of a traditional religion with like a kind of traditional religious expression, or if it's just a devotion uh, to a career or to a family or to a sport or to a hobby, whatever, are all attempts at dealing with that, that void of that broken relationship. And it's clear that Lydia felt this. Again, she's not a Jew, not a part of God's Old Testament covenant people, and yet Luke tells us that she is a worshiper of God, meaning that the God of the, the, God of the Old Testament that she's worshiping. And here's how Luke describes it in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 to 14. He says, on the Sabbath day, this is that we, there's Luke and Paul and Silas, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now there's a, a lot of this happening even in those verses because we want to understand a couple of things. Usually Paul's pattern, when he was going into a new area, he would try to find the Jewish synagogue and that's where he would start his work of explaining the good news about Jesus. The fact that he goes down to the river means that there's likely not a synagogue here, and it's a group of women, and this is not surprising because if it took 10 Jewish men in a city for there to be a synagogue established, it seems like there's not that there. So there's this collection of women who are faithfully worshiping God, and Paul goes and meets with them. Just all is beautiful in God's pursuit of Lydia, because at this, the expression of Judaism at this time, she would have had to remain silent in the presence of men. She would have been unable to participate in the formal workings of, of a synagogue. For all these reasons, there would have been barriers. But here you find the God of the Bible, who Lydia is pursuing, pursuing her, sensing that something is different. But she didn't yet know that God had come in the person of Jesus, taking steps toward her, moving toward her through the spreading of the gospel. And in this moment, Paul meets Lydia, and he shares the gospel, and Luke explains that it happens like this. Verse 14, the end of it, he says this, the Lord opened her heart, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And I wondered a lot this week as I was studying this passage, what, I wonder what Paul said to her. I, I wonder how he connected to her story, to her experience, and, and brought that into a connection with, with Jesus and the gospel and the good news and the hope that he has. Sometimes we get some of Paul's speeches recorded. We don't get that here. I just, I wonder. But I love what Brendan Manning says about sharing the good news of Jesus. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, and he says this. He says simply this. He says, to evangelize a person is say to him or her, you too are loved by God in the Lord Jesus. You too are loved by God in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says some version of that to Lydia, that you too, Lydia, are loved by God in the Lord Jesus. 
such amazing to picture this passage of how evangelism works, how sharing our faith works. Because it's so clear that like Lydia is not going to hear unless Paul says something. So Paul is speaking, but it's not because of the eloquence that Paul has. It's not because of the, how good he is at, at explaining all this that Lydia's heart is open. The Lord opens her heart. There's this concursive, this two-party working together. God clearly is using Paul, but it's not the brilliance of Paul that changes Lydia, but God working to open her heart. It moves us from religion to relationship. I mean, think about your own story. If you're a Christian or if you've been a Christian for some time, you just even think about your own journey to coming from a place of, of not believing the story, of not following Jesus, to coming to that place. I mean, there, at some point in that journey to faith, right, there were people who were speaking about Jesus to you. Maybe a parent, teacher, a coach, a speaker at a camp, an author, a friend, a pastor. Someone is telling you their story and telling you the story of Jesus. But, it, but it's not until you have this moment of God working in your life where that becomes transforming and it becomes your story. This moment of having your heart open. I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I've heard a version of a story that goes like this, that I heard the good news about Jesus for so many years, but it wasn't until, you know, fill in the blank experience. I had this, this health crisis or this problem with, with my child or I was reading this book, or I heard this sermon, whatever, but there's some moment, some experience, and then all of a sudden, it's like I've been hearing it, for, I've heard it my whole life, but then I finally heard it for real. I understood it. It came alive for me, and that's my own story. I grew up in a, in a Christian family, a Christian home, with, you know, parents and Sunday school teachers who were faithfully teaching me the story of the Bible, but it wasn't until kind of this crisis of faith in high school where I had this moment of reading Romans chapter 8, and just, man, it came alive. Now, was it the, a problem with the people who had been trying to tell me all this news before? No, I mean, I mean maybe they had done a poor job. I don't think they had. But the Lord hadn't opened my heart yet. To really make it come alive. You know, we don't ultimately have an understanding, like a mental comprehension problem. The core problem for us as humans when it comes to the good news of the gospel is we have a heart problem. We have a heart orientation problem. Which leads us to our second movement we see here, and that is that Jesus moves us from hostility to hospitality. From hostility to hospitality. Now, maybe you're thinking, especially if you spend some time with the Bible in your life, if, if you haven't, you know, maybe this isn't an objection yet, but if you've read the book of Acts 4, maybe you're thinking, well, Bill, like, Lydia, she doesn't seem particularly hostile right? I mean, I, I've read Acts, and like, I see towns where Paul gets beat up, and he gets thrown in jail. In fact, later on in this chapter, he's going to get thrown in jail. So, like, of all the people that Paul encounters in Acts, like, Lydia does not seem like a hostile. She's called a, a worshiper of God. She listens, and she wants to hear and understand. Like, she does not seem hostile. Why would you say she moves from hostility to hospitality? This is where we have to remember again that it took the work of God, it took divine intervention in Lydia's life for her heart to be open to understand and pay attention to Paul. Because even when we long for God, we cannot find him without him first finding us. I love how Oskinus puts us in that same book we quoted at the very beginning. He writes this, he says, we cannot find God without God. 
We cannot reach God without God, and we cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that we, that our seeking will always fall short unless God's grace initiates the search and unless God's call draws us to him and completes the search. This is true whether you're violently opposed or you're a Lydia who's actively seeking. And the reason for this, actually, the Apostle Paul helps us out with this. Uh, he later writes a letter to a group of churches in the capital of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome, and, and he explains it this way in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Just notice the, the vocabulary that Paul uses to describe us there. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. And, and he's not picking on you or me or any particular humans. He's just saying this is the state of human beings. Apart from the intervening work of grace in the gospel is that we're hostile to it. We're enemies of it. Maybe not actively oppressing it, but our hearts do not want it. But this is, this is the mystery. This is the scandal. This is the incredible good news of grace. Grace that when you experience it, moves you. Moves you from hostility and skepticism to hospitality. Because look what Luke records in the next verse, Lydia and her whole family, and again, it says her whole household. This would have been like, you know, any kids that live there, her servants, her staff, any, any slaves in the Roman Empire, the slavery system, this is all included in her household. Her whole staff, her whole, like, like textile organization and her family, everybody there gets, gets baptized. And then she invites everyone over for a party. This is like the first church service in Europe is happening right now, verse 15. And after she was baptized in her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my house. She's speaking to Paul and to Luke and to Silas. And again, like I said, her household is all of her biological family, servants, staff, all of this. And it's fascinating to me too here though, in all of Lydia's story, and we don't get a lot of it, but in all of her story, she's never named alongside of a man. And so we don't know her story. We don't know if she's single her whole life. Is she divorced? Is she widowed? We don't know. But regardless, she is a single woman who is excellent at her work. She's living at the very top of her career, the highest level of social strata. And immediately upon encountering the goodness and grace of Jesus, she brings all of that position and resourcing and estate, and and she uses it for hospitality. Again, we don't know all of her story, but the grace of God transforms her. And that hospitality leads to the first church on the continent of Europe meeting in her living room. I mean, think about that. Maybe if you've ever, you know, whether it's in, in documentaries or movies, or maybe you have the chance to travel to Europe, I mean, think of all the incredible church architecture in Europe, right? You have the cathedral in, in, in Paris, Notre Dame, and you have in, in London, you have Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's, all this incredible church architecture this legacy of Christian faith in Europe. It, it all started here in Lydia's living room in Philippi. We don't have St. Paul's. We don't have Notre Dame. We don't have any of that without this savvy businesswoman taking her resourcing, her estate, her home, and putting it to use in the service the movement of God. 
Rosaria Betterfield, who was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University and was profoundly opposed to Christianity, um, converted to Christ in 1999 after a pastor uh, read an op-ed that she wrote in a newspaper and invited her to come to dinner. And she, over time, spent many meals with this pastor and his family and eventually came to Jesus as a result. And she wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in it she says this, let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because this is the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. And Lydia does this, and as a result, the gospel is established on a new continent for the first time. Which leads us to the final movement that we see here in this passage. And we've seen we move from religion to relationship. We move from hostility to hospitality. And now to Jesus moves us from partaking to prevailing. From partaking to prevailing. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm getting that language of prevailing from the end of verse 15. In verse 15 says, and then she was baptized in her whole household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she prevailed upon us. And again, that, that word in English feels like a strong word. It's kind of a forceful word, prevailing upon someone. And I was curious, I did a little work on that word this week in the original language, and it has like the same level of force uh, or even maybe a little bit greater in the original. It's, it's almost the idea of pursuing someone, tracking someone down, with everything that you have. Because Lydia doesn't just partake from Paul and Luke. She, she participates. She moves from passivity to activity. She joins, she engages, she leads. And she says to Paul and Luke, like, don't, don't go yet. Stay here with me. Help me get this thing started. I think some of this is probably the result of, of this movement of the Spirit. But I also wonder if this is, this is Lydia. This is who she is. This is why she's been successful in her work. She is someone who prevails. And what I love, though, here is that Lydia has taken on the character of a God who prevailed upon her with her love, his love. The God who sent his son into the world to love her. And, and, and God does this, and he continues to move, right? He's, he's been moving from the beginning of time. He's had this plan. He sent Jesus. Then he inspired Paul with a vision to go from Asia, where he was, into the city in Philippi, in Europe, pursuing Lydia. And her response to this God who prevailed on her, her response to this God was to take on the same character. She is going to pursue him and his mission with the same fervor that he has pursued her. She doesn't just receive. It's clear that he, God, is going to use her in incredible ways to participate in the mission. But note what participating in the mission doesn't mean for Lydia. We don't read next, and then Lydia sold everything she had and left Philippi and went on Paul with this missionary journey with Paul and Silas. Sometimes that's with the pattern that we expect or the script we have in our minds that, okay, she comes to Jesus, she's going to leave everything behind and leave and, and now go on this missionary journey with Paul. But, but no, not at all. She stays in Philippi and uses her resources to establish the church there, Right? Lydia doesn't become a cross-cultural missionary in this moment. She doesn't join the, the mission board and, and go and travel to a different culture and language. 
but she joins in the mission right where she is. Now, does, that doesn't mean that we don't desperately need men and women who have the specific work and calling of doing cross-cultural mission work. Of course, we desperately need those folks who have that calling. But for far too long, uh, in certain kind of sectors of the church, we, we've given the impression, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, that the only real work in God's mission is, is working in a nonprofit or working for a church or going to be a missionary in another country or another culture. But hear this, friends. Your Monday work is not a hindrance to God's mission or just a means to making money to give to the church to further the mission. Your Monday is a part of the mission. And God's mission needs your Monday, needs your work, needs your calling, needs the place where He has placed you right now for what He's doing. Lydia uses her leadership gifts, her real estate holdings, her financial resources for the advancement of the mission in Philippi. And for some of you who have been around Christ community for a long time, you're saying, yeah, I get that. I'm excited about that. I've, I've heard about that. I'm on board. For others of you who are newer, or, or maybe even if you've been around for a while, you're like, I still need help, though, making this connection from, from this kind of Sunday, sort of the, the seemingly spiritual life of Sunday to just kind of the ordinary work and the life of Monday. And if you're in that place, whether you've been around for a long time or not for a long time, every fall we offer a class, and we're calling it this year Church for Monday. And specifically, it's kind of like our baseline beginning class, just on how do you connect the good news of the gospel to all of life, to every aspect, because we, we do believe that the gospel speaks to every part of life. And so I'd love for you to join me for that. It's nine weeks in the fall. It starts in September. So it's a little ways out still. September 14th is the first day. Um, but if you want more information about that, when we pass the clipboards later on in the service, you can just write down Church for Monday or class that Bill mentioned, whatever you want to write down on there. But just put that and I'll send you an email this week. And you can sign up for that and get involved with that. But your mission or your, your Monday is not a hindrance. It's part of God's mission. So I encourage you to take this some time this week to reflect just on those three moves. You know, where am I at in a relationship with Jesus? Is it, is it primarily about me trying to please him so that he'll bless me and get me things that I want? Or, or is it a depth of relationship that, that's real, that's pursued for him? You might ask, how am I showing hospitality? Again, whether you have a, a corner in a dorm room or you have a, a big five-bedroom house with a gorgeous kitchen. and I mean, we're all at different stages, places in life, but whatever you have, how are you using it to show hospitality? Some of you might be great at cooking. Some of you might say, like, I'm, I'm doing good just to put some pizza rolls in the microwave. It, that's not the essence of hospitality. The essence of hospitality is, is welcoming people and showing them the love of Jesus. How are you showing hospitality? Where can you grow in that? And maybe the third question is, how do I need to move from receiving to participating? From passivity to active involvement? In the different spheres in your life, maybe that's at home. Maybe you're thinking, I, I've been, I've just been kind of sitting back at home. I'm, I'm not really actively engaging with my family or with my kids or my spouse or my roommates or the people in my apartment complex or my other relationships in my neighborhood. Or maybe at work. Or maybe here at church, gathered. You know, it's like, I, I've come and it's been good, but I'm just kind of sitting on, on the edge watching. 
Maybe this is the moment where it's like, I want to get involved to serve, or to give, or to, to be a part of a leadership team, or to take a new place of service. I don't know what it is, but reflect on that. What it might look like to move from just receiving to participating. Because Lydia, like you and I, had a lot to live with. And when she encounters Jesus, she finally discovers what she had been longing to live for. And Lydia's impact, like, you can't go unnoticed. So she was the founding member of this Christian community in Philippi. And what I love is that later on, Paul writes a letter back to the church in Philippi. And it's one of his warmest, most appreciative, intimate, joyful letters. It's, it's the book of Philippians in our New Testament. We actually just finished the study in Philippians before this series. That's the church that Lydia helped to found, that met in her house. And Paul says in that letter that this was the one church that, that generously financial, financially supported him when no other churches were, that was, were with him through thick and thin. And you know, I have to believe that that was a result of Lydia's example from day one that this started. She shaped the character of a church of hospitality and generosity and love that Paul is so effusive about all those years later in his letter to the Philippians. And most of all, Lydia reminds us that we have a God who prevails upon us, a God who will stop at nothing to reveal his grace and love for us through Jesus and through his spirit recreates us into a people who prevail his grace and love upon others for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have prevailed upon us. You've drawn us into relationship with you, that you love us, that you are in the midst of transforming us. Would we follow Lydia's example of being on mission right where she was, using the unique place and position and influence and resourcing that you had given her for the advancement of the gospel? for the joy of all people. Amen.